podcast one production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. As a boy growing up on the family farm in Kangaroola, South Australia, Scott Pickett could have never dreamed where his love for food would take him. Scott has moved to London. He spent three years there in his early career. He worked under Philip Howard at the Square. And let me tell you, he's got some interesting stories about that. And since he returned to Australia, he's built himself a hospitality empire that includes Estelle, Pickett's Deli and Rotisserie, Matilda's 159, Lupo and Pastore. Who could have thought? He represented Australia in Pakustor in Europe in 2005. He's an author, a TV presenter, and an all-round good guy. Now as one of the most successful Melbourne restaurateurs, Scott talks to us about ducking and weaving and adapting to what is a very different hospitality environment. He also talks about some very dark and difficult times in that very same career. You know, Scott, I read somewhere that you're constantly travelling at 150 kilometres an hour and I go, they don't know him, 150 slow. Yeah, I'm not talking yeah. about your last speeding fight or anything no, like that. No, no. But you're a man constantly, constantly driven. Yep. Why is that? Where does this all come from? No idea actually, Gary, to be honest. It's just something inside me. I get bored very quickly. Yeah, like a lot of uh, chefs, I've probably got a lot of OCD, obsessive, compulsive sort of different orders, whether that be in the kitchen, the way that things are set up, the way that they're built. I like projects. I probably get that from my mum. She did different projects over her lifetime and still does. And I like the thrill of as I get older, um, you know, foods are kind of given for me now. You know, I've been cooking for 30 years now. And if I can't cook now, then I'm never really going to, you know, do it properly. And so it's other ways to inspire myself for, you know, personal ambition and success and just opportunity and the fun of actually, if you look at Matilda, for example, or any of the restaurants, Estelle or whatever, I love the fact that I can have a dream and an idea and then have the get up, the go, the desire to actually make that a reality and whether that be, you know, we built Estelle, the first one in three-week turnaround, right? But sort of Matilda was a three-and-a-half, four-year project. But to have that dream and that idea and then at some period in time be standing in what you built and what you've achieved, and that's only the beginning. That's before the customers come in through the door. You know, that for me gives me goosebumps still to this day and it just makes me think, you know, this is crazy, wild. Like I'm kind of living my dreams and that's exactly what it is and I have an idea and then I'll just run with it. And some are good and some are bad, but then I'll just go with the flow. I'm like, I feel inspired. I think I need to go and open another. No, I don't. No. <laughs> How many restaurants have you got now? So Matilda's the biggest one. Yeah, that's the biggest baby. Yeah, but it all started biggest. with Estelle? Yeah, but it all started with Estelle. We've just celebrated our ninth birthday, yep. so we're in our 10th year. That started. So there was Estelle, which was originally, I think, Estelle Bar Kitchen. Mm. And then about two years later, we did some Crispin. Then off the back of that, I did ESP and I split Estelle into two. I took the sort of place next door and we did Estelle by Scott Pickett, which was our tasty menu fine dining restaurant. The original Estelle became a bit of a bistro, sort of local hangout. Uh, then I did my first Pickett's Deli at the Queen Victoria Market, and then we built Matilda about 18 months, two years ago, and now we've got a deli at the airport as well too, and we opened up Bastore out at Chadston at the new hotel out there, sort of just before Christmas, and a couple of other projects on the go at I the moment I was just about too. to say, how big does it have to get? I mean, because I, I, <clears> I think it was, I don't know, I was talking to you recently, okay, but whatever happened to the dream that... 
you would be a chef and then just open one restaurant. Yeah, that's a dream that I grew up with, I suppose, and that's what I saw with a lot of the guys that I trained under that I worked for and where it was. It was kind of frowned upon for a chef to leave his kitchen, I suppose, in the yeah. 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. Yeah, it was a 30-year thing, was it yeah. not? Yeah, if you were a two- or three-star Michelin guy in Europe, if you did another project or left your kitchen, if you went there for every service, then you know you weren't actually respected or regarded. But I think as that changed with Marco Pierre White probably, and then you know Gordon off the back of maybe Paul Bacuse and, you know, Thomas Keller and sort of Joel Robichon, you're going internationally and going big and global and saying, well, I can actually set up the infrastructure of a business and a restaurant and put my DNA on it and still do other projects. Yeah. So you become like the conductor, like you say, you know the food. Yep. So you become the conductor essentially. Yeah. And you're, you're a yeah. businessman now, right? It's yeah, the, completely. Look, you get I'm, the thrill of the business, the kill, the, the win, the... And the... And the loss. And the loss. You know, know, sometimes too. I think for me, it keeps me mentally stimulated, which is a thing too. And you'll find probably now that a lot more, and I'm not saying that I'm a super intelligent guy here, whatever, but in the early days, like when I first started cooking and I went to my parents and I said, look, I want to cook. And I was 14 and I did really well at school. I found school easy. They were actually shocked. They were disappointed because as you know, when you first started cooking, it wasn't a glamorous job. It wasn't something that was like, oh, wow, are you going to be a chef? It was like, oh, wow, are you going to be a cook? Yeah. And you're going to work in the local pub or down at the local winery and do something? Is that really what you're going to do with your life? You know, there was nothing about it that was that was glamorous or special. Like I didn't even dream of TV shows or cookbooks or anything in those days or whatever. It was actually I just love food and I really wanted to cook. And so I made a deal with my mother uh, very early on that – after they got over the shock that I wasn't going to go to university, that I wasn't going to complete high school, I mean, I left school after year 11, that I made a deal with mum and, and she said, look, I don't mind what you do in your life, but I just want you to promise me two things. And, and I said, okay, what's that? And she said that you're happy and that you try your best to be the best at whatever you choose to do, whether that's a plumber, a chef, like an accountant, you just try to do the best job that you can every day. And that's sort of still instilled in me every day I wake up and I think, right, so what can we do better than we did yesterday? Where are we going wrong? You know, what's good about the business, about the food? I'm really honest with myself now. I wasn't so much in the early days and probably when I was a bit of a, like a more arrogant man in my 20s and you're full of sort of spunk and bravado and going wild and nuts as young cooks are, which you need that to really succeed, is now I sort of flip it on its head and I'm very deep inside myself to look at yeah, personally, where I'm performing and doing things well and where I'm not and where we can be better. And if you're honest with yourself, then you can address issues and say, okay, we made a mistake there. That's not quite right, but how do we fix it and move on? Mm. You got bigger dreams of when you say overseas, do you think, gee, I want to open in LA, New uh, York? Yeah, yeah. Pickett's yeah, New York? Yeah, so I would love to do New York. I love New York as a city. I'm probably the next stage for us. Uh, you know, post-COVID and everything here is looking at what we can do in Melbourne, maybe a couple of opportunities here. But prior to this coming on, like it's funny how you don't really think that these things will happen to you sometimes. And, you know, you've had an amazing career and, you know, the last 10, 12 years of your life, Gary, has been nuts. You probably didn't mm. think about that. None. In None 98, 99 yeah. in the Sofitel with Raymond and, yeah. you know, George and everyone there. Like you don't think, you kind of got to pinch yourself sometimes that these things happen. And then, you know, we were kind of in discussions with three or four sort of major um chains and groups to do some stuff in Bali and in Indonesia and in Vietnam and in Hong Kong and in Singapore. So all of a sudden the name of the brand gets there and I'm like, I kind of swing between sort of selling everything up and just standing in a cell by myself and doing that or with <laughs> or a small team and doing that um, and working 60, 78 hours a week and having that pure essence of what a cook and a chef does. 
but I've kind of done that the last two or three months during this crazy COVID period. And unfortunately at 44 now, my back and my legs and my hips and everything aren't like they used to be. So I kind of think about myself as a footballer in a sense that I've moved through my playing days and now my role is to coach the team. And I can't be on the ground every morning and then I can't be there every night, even though I still do, I probably do five or six services a week, like sort of dinner services. I like being in the restaurants. I like being around them. I've got great family support and they let me do what I do. And now we get a little bit more balance um, with our life. I give my family Sundays now and Monday nights. <laughs> But that's the life and that's what it is. And it's not that I do anything differently to a lot of people that are absorbed by their businesses or their restaurants or their industries. It's that's our time. Um, Our lives work sort of side by side. And then I'm very fortunate that my wife's got that family support and the kids are getting a bit older now that they just know that that's what I do. Um, I think it's a common theme amongst chefs because it's so emotional. Yep. You know, there are, there's certainly lots of comparable careers out there, but because it's so emotional, you feel indebted to it. You've got to be there. You've got to... It's very hard to step away with it, and lots of chefs you talk about go, I can't leave. Yeah, there's it's guilt. It's guilt, yep. and it's also yep. there's and it's professional guilt as well. Yep. You know, yeah, people yeah, go, completely. oh, you're not, you're not even there. there. Yep, yep. No, I I really, really struggle with that personally, I which think is probably why I still do five or six dinner services a week. I will do a service from Tuesday to Saturday every week, and Sundays or Mondays will, will be dependent upon who's in the business, what's going on in the business. If the head chef's off, if there's not, if there's a VIP, if there's a function, if there's an event. But I do like to be in in the restaurants and I don't want to be one of these guys that builds them and then sits at home. I like to be on the front line. So now I sort of like I structure my week differently where I work on the business, in the business every day, sort of Monday to Friday, like my little office is above Estelle. And then I'll check in with the boys at Matilda or at Lupo or, or at Pastore or whatever and then work on figures and growth and new menus and ideas and the vision that I have, which constantly changes every week, unfortunately. I should write a business plan, but, you know, I just kind of freestyle a bit. And then by four o'clock, I'll have sort of family meal with the team and then we have our dinner and then I'll do the pass and I like to do the pass. Well, and, I'm exhausted. Whether it's dress plates. Just, or, I'm just listening to you. Look I've, <laughs> look, I've never really slept much, Gary, so it's kind of good. And, and you know, now that I'm a pretty well-behaved man and I don't drink and party and go nuts uh, like I used to, uh, then I've got I've this extra sto- energy and I've stuff. Yeah. stories. I don't know how appropriate yeah. we need to be, but I love that advice that your mum gave you. Yeah, yeah. How beautiful is that, it, you know, to have... It was a gift. It was a gift, yeah. Yep, yeah. yeah, and know. it's something that still resonates with me daily, actually, where you have certain things that people tell you and it just sticks in your head and I use that as a driving force. I use that as a catalyst, you know, mm. to be better to, you know, you don't want to disappoint your mum, do you, you know? Yeah, but it's. It, I think you meet so many people that are in careers that they, and, you know, they all want to be something else, or not yep. all, but a lot of people want to be yep. something else because it was never really yeah, what they wanted thing. to do. And yeah. it's a, Back then, so when you said I want to be a chef, for your mum to turn around and go do whatever you want to do but yep. you got to love it, it would have been quite a brave thing to do, I think, from your perspective. You did well at school, did you not? Yeah, I did, I did. So I, you say you left early, but I, I read skipped somewhere. skipped a year of school or, as well, too. Yeah, I skipped, skipped a year of school. So we were from Melbourne how originally. Skip, how do you skip a year of school? Uh, well, I argued with the principal. I've always been pretty sort of confrontational, I suppose. So we were in Melbourne. Um, I was born and, and raised here till I was like 11 or 12. And then my father's from South Australia. So we actually went on a holiday, uh, drove around Clarendon, McLaren Vale, and then we found a beautiful like a beautiful block of land in Kangarilla and my folks bought it and they said, right, we're moving back. Um, my dad's the youngest of six. He's got five sisters. Four of them were born in a little stone cottage around the corner, like five minutes from where the farm was, you know, relatives and family there. I was in year eight in Melbourne, which is a second year high school. So we arrived in South Australia and the South Australian, the school system's different. So you do year seven 
is still in primary school. So year eight is your first year and then year nine is your second year of high school. So then I get there and I say, okay, you're going in year nine. I said, no, no, I'm going into third year of uh, high school. And I said, if I was in Melbourne, it'd be seven, eight, nine. Yeah, but here it'd be eight, nine, 10. And I'm a December baby. So I was right on that cusp of if I was born six months earlier than in the South Australian system, I would have been a year up. But if I was two weeks later, then I would have been sort of down. So then I argued with the principal, argued with my folks. <laughs> and he made a deal with me and he said, okay, I'll give you the first term. And if you get straight A's and everything, you can stay in year 10. So I like I blitzed my first term. I, I didn't have any problems and he never came back to see me again. So... I'm sure he thought you were going to fail. You yeah, get yeah, straight A's, you can stay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and I got them and we never really had like, like another conversation about that. But where that kind of linked me into being into food early as well as being at the farm but also into sort of into sort of proper kitchens was at the end of year 10 and I was only 14 and nine months is we did work experience. So I was kind of 18 months off getting my license. I wanted to save for a car like most young lads do was there. You know, get your license at 16 and a half in Adelaide. I was like, right, well, if I get a job at the local winery as a kitchen hand, that was my goal really, then I can save for a car and then I can drive from the country down to the city to see my mates and chase girls and party, do all the stuff that sort of teenage boys do. And that's really where it started, Gary. And then it became an obsession very early on, as you said earlier, with people finding their thing is from the moment that I stepped into a kitchen... I found my stainless steel asylum that was my home, really. <laughs> and, and I just felt comfortable. And I was really, look, I'm one of those lucky people. I don't go to work every day. I, I just wake up and live my life. And now they happen to be exactly where I want them to be and where I've worked so hard to get them to that point in 30 years. So it's not work. It's just my life and my thing and what I do. So I found my gift and I found my calling early on. And then I've just flown with it. Did your parents, before that advice of do what you want to do, and be happy. Did they say, "Hey, you could do this"? There was another deal with my mum at this stage too. So I was only be a lawyer. Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You it was. I was going to be. You know, I wanted to be sort of in economics or being a lawyer right. or be something like that. Really, that was my goal. And my parents didn't go to university, but my mother was the PA or the personal assistant for the chairman of Shell for many, many years um, in South Australia out of Birkenhead. And my old man built submarines out of Birkenhead too. So he worked for the Australian Submarine Corporation. So both are very sort of intelligent people. And my mother was one of those that if she was born in a different era would have been very successful in the corporate world. But in the 50s, 60s, 70s, women didn't get those opportunities. You were an assistant. Right, but she used to write the speeches for the chairman of Shell and just organise his life and make direction calls and was with him for many, many years. So she's a very intelligent woman, very switched on. And so at the end of year 11, I got off in an apprenticeship. So at this stage, right, the school bus used to come up the hill and I was at the old Clarendon Winery and I would get off the bus at four o'clock on Friday and I would work four o'clock till midnight or one o'clock in the morning in the dishes and in the plonge. And the deal was as soon as I finished, like the dishes and the pot wash, like it was a big venue. They had a winter garden restaurant that seated about 250, 300 for buffet. They had a fine dining restaurant of 40. They had a bakery. They had a cafe. They had functions, events, and about sort of 40 little rooms. And the plonge was about the size of this studio. And the plonge being the pot wash. Yeah, being the pot wash for those that don't know. And yeah. so I would walk in. Miserable places. Miserable places. It was about this size. It was bloody big, right? And they would save all the pots for me and just put everything in this room. And it'd be three or four hours where I would do the old cut the holes in the arms of the garbage bag, you know, put that over your head, put the big wraparound thing, the big gloves on, you know, cling film the arms yeah. and, and just shoulders get stuck into in. The base of the pots. Yeah, shoulders in and go hard for three or four hours. So <laughs> then I, I would be ready. My goal was to have it done by 7, 7.30 so then I could go in the main kitchen and then join the service with the guys in the larder and the pastry, do that. 
And so I'd do that on Fridays till about midnight. I'd play country footy Saturday mornings. Then I'd work from two or three o'clock on Saturdays till about midnight. And then Sundays I always did a day shift from 10 to five. So even at sort of during year 11, I was, I was already doing 25, 30 hours a week in three days. And the funny thing there was, there was a bakery that was run by a a group of German boys, right? So there was Heinz, Fritz, there was Alfred. There was five of them. And the funny Sounds thing is- Sounds like a is, comedy skit, doesn't it? There's one coming. It's so very, Heinz very funny, actually. No, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there was the father that was, that was Fritz and then the four boys. Now, they had 152 bakers and pastry chefs in their immediate family in Germany, right? So these are boys, and I'm learning bean shtick, bee sting and different things. And if I was slow on the pot wash and I wasn't out till 12, 1230, then these German boys would arrive. But you never knew which one was turning up, Gary, right? Because they did about six or seven bakeries in Adelaide and they'd just work out sort of who was where, right? So one night Fritz would turn up, the next night Alfred would turn up and then he'd moan about his brother and then he'd moan about his dad. <laughs> and then I'd be caught with the bakers till three, four, five in the morning baking. Right, so I would do you know twelve, fourteen, sixteen hour shifts at this stage, and then go back, sleep home for a bit, and then. But I loved it. I loved it. So that's so really. You've got to, I mean, you. I mean, I think about my first transition from dishes to working in the kitchen, yep. which is yep. what I want to do. Yep. I was about the same age. I was about fourteen, fifteen years old. Yep. But yours much more exciting. My, I used to look at my this chef, right, yep. and he was cooking stuff on the pans, and I used to yep. think, wow, yeah, yeah. he's creating stuff. And I, but when I think about the dishes, I go. Oh, oh, they weren't good. No, but you, no. you'd have some great memories out of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if they yeah. Big venue, lots yep. going on. Can you remember it, it a, was, a thing that you know? It's like, was it the smell of the bread? Was it learning? Yeah, how to, the bread was a big one, but it was actually going out on the buffet and the carvery. So Sunday they'd have a big carvery, and being a bit of a young, you know, man about so town, I'd like to go out and, and check all the girls out on the, the carvery while carving the beef. <laughs> And so I'd always put my hand up, right, to go out on the carvery. Now, the other boys didn't want to do it because they had to be nice to customers. They had to actually mm-hmm. smile and do stuff, you know, and kitchens were pretty rough and ready places back in those days. So they'd like to go in the back and they'd just put, you know, the young pimply fella out on the buffet and I'd just stand there for three hours and carve and enjoy and the afternoon. And talk to people and enjoy it and just sort of carve the beef and, and just run around and then, you know, you've got to fill up the chafing dishes and the salads and a bit of responsibility even at 15 or 16. And so then at the end of this year, they offered me an apprenticeship and then I sat down again with my folks and then mum said, well, look, I'll make a deal with you. And I said, what? She said, well, look, you can do it for one year and if you don't like it or if you don't succeed or if it's not your thing, then you'll go back to school and you'll be in the same year that you would have been if we had have stayed in Melbourne. Mm. And if you do like it, you can carry on. But if you don't, then you've got a year's you know, like a life experience, you've grown up a little bit, you've seen what it's like and you've put that to bed. And so I made that deal and I never went back to school and yeah. um, and then the rest, like I suppose, is kind of history. But that apprenticeship only lasted about three months and then they went into receivership. The good thing was that they were owned by like an Austrian family that had really good contacts with a gentleman in by the name of Peter Jama in Adelaide. And so PJ is kind of like the Jacques Ramond of Melbourne in a sense. He was the first one to really take fine dining to Adelaide. He'd won all the awards. He had a beautiful old sort of house restaurant in Kensington. Uh, very, very strict. And then I went and applied for a job through them and I worked with PJ for two years, who I still speak to now. Like his son was a chef that was in the Australian team, you know. And so Peter was, you know, the head of Tort Blanche, the head of the Chain de Rotissier. So all that kind of stuff I learnt at 15 yeah. or 16. What so the old wrapped, school boys wrapped in it. Wrapped up in it from yeah. a very early age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. 
If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. Do you reckon your formative years in South Australia and yep. being connected to the land like yep. that? You yep. know what I mean? Being out in Clarevale or whatever. Yep. There's something about South Australia. I don't know what it is. There is. Something about South Australia, whether it's the fact that Adelaide's easy to get around and it's connected very mm. much to, you know, the countryside around it. Is that why you're still so passionate about My it? My biggest scope with that probably, I think, is there's a bit of dope smoking that goes on in Adelaide. There's a few hippies. It's a bit more relaxed. There's a lot of, you know, there's two great wine regions, you know, for North and South, and then you get to Clare Valley as well too. In the 70s and 80s, the food in Adelaide for me was probably ahead of Sydney and Melbourne. You know, when you had sort of Anne Oliver there, you had Maggie B, you had Philip Searle, you had Peter Jama, you had Chong, there was Nettie's, there was Erz, Inwan and Tom Milligan at the height there. So all these people that came through Adelaide in this really creative artistic sense that you cooked food that was different to what was being done in Melbourne and Sydney. It was very progressive food scene. Yeah. And it was a wonderful environment to grow up in and to see and to have that link with the land and the produce, but also these people that just, like, they think outside the box, you know? Yeah. I think it was my first trip when I arrived here in 91, in yep. Australia in 91. Yep. I basically got in the car and drove to Adelaide yep. you know, with my wife. And um, I was very taken aback back then that I thought anywhere else in the world, you know, hotbed of, you know, wineries and produce yep. or anything would just be... It'd be like well, Tuscany. Yeah, it'd you be know a Mecca. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this, yeah. this is quite a long time ago. It's 30 years Yeah, ago. it is. Yeah. And I remember sitting in Bistro 1918 in yes. Tanunga, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I just, it was very Mediterranean at the yeah. time, right? Yeah. But it was basically just local chicken, olives, and I was drinking a clear skin. And I'm just looking at my wife going, this is beautiful. Chilled. Yeah, yeah simple. Relaxed, produce, food, driven. Everything was from just like over there. Yep. In amongst all the very driven, very successful yep. I mean, you're running some of the best restaurants in Melbourne. You've got a career that really, I mean, yeah, tick, yeah, yeah tick. Yeah, I mean, and probably yeah. we know, yeah. I think we're kind of same era, so I'm a bit, I'm quite a bit older than you, but you know a lot of people. Only a little uh, bit. No, I'm quite a bit, I'm kidding. Okay. Jeez, it's when you get out in the morning and you groan, you know, you get out of bed. And yeah, morning, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not quite at that stage um, yet, but yeah. <clears throat> what have been the hardest times in your life, in your career? Because it's a bit like yeah. that chef thing where everybody goes, it's not glamorous, you know, like, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of yeah, people yeah, think it's glamorous. Yeah, yeah, Food is glamorous. Is. I think one of the reasons we're in some of the trouble we're in now. But it's it's a tough business, yeah. isn't it? Did yeah. you ever question? It is tough. Do you ever question why the hell you? Many, many times along the way, many times along the way. Like, you know, when I came back to Melbourne, I had two, two and a half years at the Windsor when the Grand Dining Room was still going then, when the age had five hats, when we had four hats there. Um, and that's when I really wanted to work with Philip Michel. Mm. And so I, I was with Bruno Sedan at the Windsor. And this is the late, you know, this is the mid-90s. This is 94, 95, 96 there at the Windsor when all the five-star uh, places in Melbourne, and they actually had a signature restaurant before yeah. they cleaned them all out, you know. Yeah. When you had a restaurant, when you had um, Alto, you had the Grand Dining Room, you had Max's, Max's was, yeah. you had all of them in town really. You know, that was a beautiful time to really learn that and understand a big brigade and be pulled into line a little bit. And then the deal with Bruno was that I would always sort of go to sort of Paul Bacuse because that was my dream. I'd sort of read about sort of Philippe in Gourmet Traveller since I was 14 or 15. And then I transitioned through and did two and a half years there. Then it changed and I went to Bacuse for about a year and a half. 
with Philippe and then sort of we left there. Well, then he left there and then he invited me to go to Langton's with him when we opened up, which was a massive thing. I was only 21, 22 and everyone was like, so you're going with the chef O? Has he had a chat with you yet? Is he not? I was like, oh, no, I haven't had a chat. He goes, I don't know if you'll be invited. I don't know what's happening. He doesn't like (laughs) you. But then I got invited to go to Langton's and join the other three or four call boys from Bacoos. And then we opened up Langton's. There's now Chaconis down there, which was an unbelievable restaurant. I mean, you know, the second Bonnet, the second big stove in the country come through. And high volume, busy restaurant, the first real underground restaurant in Melbourne yeah, in the basement. Proper yeah, proper brasserie in a beautiful place to cook. And from there I went to London and that's when when I fell into the square and I fell in love with food and with Phil Howard, you know, and the person that he is and the square mentality and the square boys and Brett Graham and then Rob Weston that had been at Marco's so and Geese of War and stuff. Kitchen. That was a fing hard kitchen. Yeah, I've got to put one in, Gary. Sorry, but that actually deserves the one. You can beep that one out. Yeah, can you beep that one out? Um, That was hard and it was intense. And that would probably be the biggest period of my life where I really questioned at times. Look, I was very, very determined and only went for 12 months. I stayed two and a half, almost three years in the UK. You know, a few visa issues and things along the way, and you know, don't worry about those. But every Australian, don't worry about. Yeah, every Australian does. Almost got deported, and and long stories at the end of it. But Phil was, I'd never felt as home as I did from the first morning that I walked into the square. So I hadn't been. I'd I'd been travelling Europe for about three months, pretty much by myself. And I I heard a little little birdie told me that you you had a fiance. I did have a fiance at that time that was studying in Australia. Yep, and you said I'm going to go overseas for. Yeah, for 12 months. And you stayed three years. Yeah, I did. So the deal was, so she was in university in her last year in university. I wanted to go and cook, as I've always termed it, you you know, with the big boys. I wanted to go work in a two or three star. I was champing at the bit since Bakusa. Like, I really wanted to go to France, and I wanted to go to Lyon and to Paul Bakusa and then to Paris, but it was hard with visas in those days, really, really hard. And even Philippe couldn't help me with Paul Bakusa and everything. So, like, I settled on London, and the deal was I'd go for 12 months, and then I'd come back and then, um, you know, we'd get married and move on at 23 and 24. So that kind of didn't work. And three weeks before... Well, you left. I mean... <laughs> well, I left. Look, and she came to help, visit me twice. I mean, she came okay. to visit me twice and we travelled for a bit at the start. Um, and then about four or five weeks before the wedding, um, she called me and she said, look, you're coming home. Is everything good? I'm like, uh, there's a slight issue. And she said, what's that? I said, well, I'm on the fish... And I go on the sauce next week and it's game season and I really want to cook the sauce. And she goes, so you're leaving me for the sauce. I'm like, well, it's not just the sauce. It's the meat section at the square and it's game season and it's wild duck and there's mallard and there's grouse and there's bacass and snipe and everything. So when I finish, yeah, when I finish this section, which will probably be a little while, you know, that I'll be home. And she said, how long? I said, well, at least three to six months. So she hung up and I never really spoke to her again oh. after that. That was the end of it, yeah, you a, know, which is a, unfortunate. But it was – that is how – yeah, that is how committed I was and how driven I was that I could not leave the square before I'd cooked the meat in the sauce section. Otherwise, it was almost pointless, Gary. I'd done the cold larder. I'd done the hot starters. Yeah. I'd done the fish. I, look, I never cooked – I, I cooked a veg section there for one day, actually. I went veg one day and then, then Phil goes, you're on the fish. I'm like, all right, great, because I mm. – yeah, the veg. We always had a rule in London: you want to do fish, fish section, spring, summer. You want yep. to do game season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in the winter, because yep. that's. I mean, let's be honest: you're handling ten or twelve different game birds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Stunning stuff. Yeah, yeah it's, and you're cooking sauces you're cooking, to order. We're making sauces to order. Yeah, We're roasting everything yeah. on there. Everyone's got a done. And with Rob Weston, who was Phil's best mate, and sort of head chef, 
Yeah, but he'd been at Marcos for three years, and he'd just come from the Gavroche's sous chef for two years, been a Guy Savoir. So during game season, look, he'd butcher your bird. You know, you dry age them or hang them with the guts and everything for eight, 10, 12 days. I mean, Phil came back one day and he had all these pheasants, and he just put them in the core and feathers and everything, guts and the whole thing. And, you know, there's probably maybe 10 metres from the core to the main pass. And then I said, Phil, so when's the game birds ready? When can we use them? He said, when you can stand here and smell them, <laughs> then they're ready to pluck. And so we wait eight or 10 days until they were minging and then you'd clean them all out, gloves on and everything. And then you'd, you know, butcher them, then dry age, you know, give them a wash dry age for a couple more days. And then you'd roast them to order. Then you'd take it off the bone and then you'd cook the sauce and finish the sauce to order. So yeah. you'd have your pheasant base or your bacass base or or, beautiful or, or thing, an on-game going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're actually reducing with armagnac and brandy and chalots mm. and mushrooms like a sauce to water made a la minute, yeah. right? Do you know what I mean? And taking the brains out the snipe yeah, head and putting them the through. Liver great. And, and, and the liver's chopped through. Stunning yeah. stuff. And so really the square for me was, you know, the best years of my life as a cook. But there's also, there's a, I mean, the downside to that, yep. I don't know if you felt it, yep. is that you are literally a creature of the shadows. Oh, I mean, completely. you're going to work. It was 7 a.m. till midnight or 1 a.m. there, five, six days it. a week. Yeah. And it can be. Very depressing. It can be uh, – I found London in the end got on top of me just because yep. it became grey. Yeah, 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 great. But, but yeah, through yeah, a grey exactly. You don't see anything, and that's exactly right, Gary. That was the thing. I mean, it was my greatest times of my life, not necessarily personally as well too because I was a little bit wild and crazy and, you know, quite obsessive and that all does get to you. But, I mean, also some of the darkest times in my life where I'm absolutely flat broke, I'm actually going through the couch. Like I shared a house with three other chefs that were at the Intercontinental with Cromberg, actually, oh, yeah. at Souffle. Yeah. yeah, with Paul Barton, you know, Paul, for yeah, many years. Absolutely. So Paul and I have been best mates since we worked at the Windsor, you know, and both kind of Adelaide boys did our apprenticeships together. So Paul was there. There was Dan and Maria there when, you know, wow. like they were fresh off the boat. They didn't even speak one word of English. So there was the four of us in that house together. And I would be so skint that I would be going down in the back of the couch trying to find, you know, one pound or two quid just to get the tube or pay for the bus and I used to get the number 34 bus at 617 every morning to go to in in into Mayfair now if you're getting home at 12 31 o'clock in the morning on the night bus you're sleeping for four to five hours I remember nights getting home yeah and my feet would be bleeding I would be in that much pain and so exhausted that I would literally just sit in the shower for an hour and fall asleep in the shower on the floor just sitting down and wake up 20 minutes, 40 minutes later and it's, and it's stone cold and I'm freezing and the hot water's run out and then realise it's 2am and I've got to get up in four hours and then just go and sleep. My room was the size of a – I had a single bed, three drawers next to the single bed. The door actually – would hit the bed, you couldn't open the door fully and it was about the size of a sort of like of a broom cupboard and the radiator didn't work so I had like, I had two sleeping bags and a doona, I would curl up into that, I'd pass out for a few hours and then wake up and then go back in and go nuts again. Crazy but you know I went there straight from Bakus and with Philippe and everyone and Langtons I thought you know I had a bit of a swagger and a bit of an ego and I'd spent after I was travelling, I'd spent the Mondays at Gordon's doing a stage, the Wednesday at the Square, the Friday at the Oak Room. And actually, Gordon's was was a great day. You know, Gordon, love him or hate him or whatever, I definitely respect him. And to me, he was great that day. I spent a whole day in the kitchen. And, and like, I hadn't been in a, in a sort of industrial commercial kitchen for three months. That was the longest period of my life. In 10 years, I'd been out of one. I'd been drinking and partying around Europe and Paris and coming back. 
and then you're at Gordon's at 6.30am in the middle of winter on a Monday morning and there's Sarge and the boys breathing down your neck over the Giroles and the Chanterelles mm. and I'm shitting myself. Do you know what I which mean? Which are mushrooms for those. Yeah, which are mushrooms, you know, grading them and cleaning them and doing stuff. And then we spent the whole day, Gordon was in and out and then about like 11 o'clock at night he comes in and he goes, where's this Aussie boy? Where's, you know, young Bakus? Where's little Paul? You know, and he said, oh, I'm like, here, chef. It's not chef. And as you know, all the stories are true. It's not chef, it's Gordon. Come here. You're an Aussie. You drink beer? I'm like, uh, yes, Gordon. Of course I drink beer. He goes, okay, well, let's go in the bar, right? And so we sat down and he cracked a beer and we sat there and he gave me an hour of his time that at 23, when I dreamed of oh, being there and I and I spent a day in his kitchen as a stage in a trial and he said, look, my brigade's actually full. But, you know, it's mid-year. I'm gearing up for busy Christmas. Look, I could carry you for two or three months. Where else are you going? What else are you doing? What have you cooked? What are your plans? Where are you living? It was a wonderful hour where then I said, look, I'm going to the square. I'm going to, you know, to Marco's. He said, well, I'd be surprised and disappointed if you went anywhere else in London aside from here or the square because Phil Howard is the other best cook in London. He goes, you know, Marco's passed it. I don't worry about the Gavroche, this, this, this. And I said, thank you, Gordon. So then I had the Wednesday at the square. And that morning really changed my life. I got there at 10 to 7 and there was one guy out the back, you know, was having a coffee and a cigarette at 6.50 in the morning. It was Phil Howard. And then to walk in, Phil, we have a chat. Yeah, yeah, mate, you want a coffee? You want a cigarette? Yeah, okay, sure. We had a little chat. And then we made foie gras, pigeon and truffle terrines together for the whole morning on the front bench. You've got 14 guys going nuts and Phil and I making terrines. It was the first time I'd seen and fresh foie gras. And didn't know me from a bar or so. He said, okay, I'll see how you can cook, if you can cook a bird, if you can do this, if you can do that, and then, you know, we'll check out your basic knowledge. And then we sort of on the front pass at the square, we just sat there and we lined terrines and we cooked cabbage in duck fat and we did all our garnish. I'd never seen fresh foie gras before, like I'd seen it in France recently yeah. on holidays, but not to cook with. Yeah. And fresh European truffles, you know, very different in Australia in the 90s there. And then all these beautiful birds. And that was sort of what he called the bin end special, the bin end terrine, because you'd keep all your shallots and all your trim for your foie gras and all your trim for your truffles, still beautiful, but the confit pigeon legs yeah. and a beautiful mosaic terrine, you know, that we'd made together and pressed. And then we did the lunch service and I was just absolutely gobsmacked. Just to put it in perspective, I mean, that's, I mean, in my, in my cooking career, I would, I don't think I would have ever have stood at, at the pass or anywhere else with one of my chefs. Yeah. You know, like yep. uh, Michelle Bourdain, for example, yep. would have never have no. made you know, he was in the office, walked yeah. around, called the pass. He was like yeah, God. Yeah, then left was like God, whereas Phil yeah. was really, re and, you know, this is only maybe two years after Phil had got his second star. So for me, this is 99 by this stage. And the Square probably was the best restaurant in London by far at that stage for that two, three, four-year period. You know, some would say Peter Tear was close, which he was. With Shane was there, was a really, really good kitchen in those days too. And obviously Gordon went from two to three stars during yeah. that period. In 99, Gordon only had two when I was there for my trial. But then a couple of years later, he picked up his third and a few boys coming through from Gordon's and Aubergine and Lorangier. So, I mean, that that food scene for me at that time, that late 90s, just post Marco era, was probably the golden years of hardcore London yeah. food when it was yeah, yeah. serious and no mucking around. Having said that, the square was renowned for being, you know, the wild child of sort of Michelin star kitchens and Phil had always been yeah. a bit wild and that's probably where we really connected and really jowled, even though he was clean and sober there, um, you know, then and still is, is that's where he sort of saw, you know, a lovable wild rogue and gave me a lot of time and a lot of... Um, you know, grey periods for turning up late or not showing up sometimes or, you know, having the key 
Right, so I had the key. This is a story, Gary. I had the key. Right? Are we talking about the key to the restaurant? The key to the restaurant. So you got to open up and get right? it Right, you've got to open up. So about 12 months in, I get promoted to junior sous chef and I get a key. So Rob never wanted the key. Phil never wanted the key. No one wanted the key because I didn't want the responsibility to be there at five to seven. Right, so I get the key. Digger gets the key. Right, I was Digger. That's where Digger comes from those days. Right, that's a gift from Rob West and that nickname. There, there was me, there was Brett Graham, and there was a Kiwi boy, Scotty. So there were two Scots, and every time Rob would say... You know, Scott, Scott, then me and Kiwi yeah. would answer, and every time he'd say Skippy or Aussie, me and Brett would answer. So then he said, I'm sick of this. You're Kiwi, you're Digger, and you're Brett. <laughs> Easy. So then we knew from there. So that's where the Digger and my nickname, that alter ego that, yeah, got me through that tough period, kind of flourished but also floundered, I suppose, in many sense. So, yeah, if I got the key and, you know, we were going pretty hard. Like I would pull at least one, if not two all-nighters a week in London during that period, you know, where we'd go out, we'd drink beers from 1am till 6 and then go, well, it's 5 or 6am, there's no point going home, just go in, be first in the kitchen, uh, get changed and just start smashing on the fish at 7am, 6am in the morning, you know, just to get ahead. And so, look, it was pretty wild in those days, but I had to keep it. Sometimes I'd push it a little bit too hard and then I'd sleep in and I had a bit of a reputation. So I hold the record <laughs> of arriving to a two Michelin star restaurant at 11.50 10 to 12 on a lunch service and I get there and there's 18 chefs on the back wall and 16 waiters waiting. Right, the first customers are in 10 minutes, Gary. Normally you're in there at 7 a.m., 6.30 in the morning. Everyone in the shit up to their eyeballs. Phil and Rob just like, Digger, I don't ever want this to happen again or else you go on. I'm like, all right. Yeah, the next morning I was that tired. I slept in. I rolled in at 9.30 the next day with the key. I'm like, Digger, what are you doing? You can't do this two mornings in a row. I'm like, yeah, no, it feels like, mate. But it's earlier. I mean, you're... Yeah, yeah, it's I'm coming down. I'm coming down. But you would be, (laughs) you know, but to give you the scale and the intensity of that is you would do 80 for lunch and 100 and 120 for dinner every day, day and day. You would do 200 covers. It didn't matter. Like you could work through the night and you would still not have the mise en place and be ready for the next lunch service every day. It didn't matter. A good friend of mine, Max Ganoika, used to work at the Gavroche and he was there for like three years, I think it was. He told me stories. I used to see him on the Marleybone Road. Like I'd leave my work. I was maybe at the Intercom then he was at the Gavroche thing. And we'd often meet on our bicycles, you know, like one o'clock in the morning or whatever. And he said, um, he goes, oh, some of the boys are just staying behind. And what they used to do was that They'd lock the kitchen up and the commies yep. would hide in the fridges and under yep. the benches. Yep. And then when the chef had left, I can't remember who it was, I don't know if yep. it was junior or senior, they would they turn would the lights back, back out and then they get and do knock over two hours prep and then yep. turn the lights off and leave. Yeah, go home. How, yeah. how Insane. mental. Mental, mental. Yeah, yeah mental. Those, were day, those yeah. days, thankfully, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe I'm just getting soft in my old age. I'm thankful, to be honest. There's a part of it that's... When you talk about it, it's romantic to me. I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, of course. And of course. I love, I can smell the kitchen. Do you know yeah. what I mean? But there's a bit of it that you just go, it's a terrible part or a period as well. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because it took advantage you know, of so the, many people. You know, for the industry. Um, yeah. And I think it set us up in many ways. I never, in my career, I think being through that system is that I never wanted to put my Our team staff and, or team yeah, yeah. through that. You know, yeah. lead by example, always be there. Yeah whatever, yeah. but try, you know, as much as you can to And try to find a bit some, of balance, a bit of life balance. balance. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. kicking your staff out, you know, on a split shift. Go. Yeah, I don't go want to see break. you back. And yeah, but chefs are typically martyrs, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? They want to be there. I think, that's, that? I think that's ego. I think that's... Is it just the dignity of labour? Is it, it is. Is it the emotional the, pressure of it? And, yeah, all of it, all of it. I think it's... 
it, it, it's the ego, it's the pressure, it's a, it's the ones to be on top. Um, it's the fact that probably most restaurants, I mean, the square was doing really well in those days, but the majority of restaurants uh, work on such thin margins that to actually achieve and push yourself, you actually, you know, you probably couldn't, outside of some of those top restaurants, actually afford to have more people in the kitchen. Now, the you know, the top one's doing well. You know, they could have afforded another three, four, five guys in the kitchen. We're only yeah. on 220 pounds a week. And yeah, they used to average, have you know. stagiaires as well working yeah, for free. Yeah, and stagiaires right? and working for free. So you could, but I just think it was that martyr to be the best. We have to work harder. You work longer than everybody else. You couldn't actually find that balance that might be around in many kitchens and top kitchens of the world now. If you look at 11 Madison Park, they've been 40, 45, 42 hours for many, many yeah. years. I have an AM and a PM shift. Yeah. Now you come in and you work hard for those 40, yeah. 42 hours, yeah, but then you're out. Knife. But it causes a lot of you know, problems, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, it, it, there's it a lot of casualties and there's been a lot of talk about... Um, you know, the uh, mental health that, that comes through with Mental health in the industry. Yep. Um, alcoholism yep. in the industry. Yep. Suicide, unfortunately, because yep. there's, we've lost a few of our friends, haven't we, yeah, over the last yeah, few we years? Have. Yeah, we have. Well, I mean, on the alcoholism thing, I mean, I don't drink anymore. I've been clean and sober for seven and a half years now. And that was probably for me... Um, you know, that's probably where Phil and I really connected because he's been clean and sober for many years with different issues over time. But he saw in me even at 22, 23, we'd have chats in the office where he'd say to me, mate, I've seen the devil, I've seen the demon, I've seen that look in your eyes, you need to keep an eye on this, it's going to get out of control. At some stage, I mean, my grandfather was unfortunately a chronic alcoholic and it's in my blood and I knew... Uh, from the first time that I ever had a beer and a drink at 14 or 15 that I liked the taste of it too much. I have been very lucky and sort of very fortunate in a lot of things, but the dark side to all of that is that, you know, when I first started cooking at the Clarendon Winery at 14 or 15, I went from being a child almost to a man, and I was in a man's world, and I missed that sort of transition through the end of high school, through university, mm. to really grow up, and I went from yeah. being a boy to a man, and I was in a man's world, and you worked hard, so I deserved a beer, and I was drinking... Like I remember having jelly shots and throwing up on the way home in mum's car and then she's like, you know, what's going on? And I'm only 15. I'm like, oh, I think I had a couple of dodgy prawns. And she's like, really? Because it's sort of technicolor like the jelly shots on the bar there, you know, those little, you know, those vodka jelly shots and stuff. And that for me was, you know, the beginning where I knew that there would be a day in my life where I would have to choose. And, and, what, and what was that day? That was where it was about 18 months into Estelle. And the first 18 months is, uh, you know, pretty wild regarded. You're not supposed to sort of glorify your drinking and your days and all those kind of things, but there's part of me that does. And, and you know, who that persona was, you know, the digger and who that person was and my nickname and who I would become when I drank or when I really pushed myself to the extremes of, you know, 18, 20, 22, 24, 26 hour shifts and where I went sort of mentally, especially for days on end, was I realized that. I'd really been self-medicating for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years to deal with the stress, with the pressure, with the, um, you know, that anxiety, that guilt of not being in the kitchen or not being on the pass and how I went through that cycle that was, I would, I would wake up with a hangover, I would get out of bed, I would shower and I would just go straight in the kitchen and I would work until the job was done or until I was physically ready to drop and then I would drink. And then I would drink until I would almost drop or be ready to be done. And then I would sleep for a few hours and then I would do that again. And again and again and again. And the first 18 months of Estelle, where it was my first restaurant, my own, it was the first time that I had absolutely no one to answer to in my life. So it, it kind of progressively got worse through the years. I was always a heavy drinker. I was always a big party boy. I'd go, well, and I, I excelled at it, Gary. I did it really, really well. And I could do that well and still cook and still hold down a job and just be late randomly every three or six months. But I talked to my wife about it, to friends, to people about it. 
if I was in any other industry, there is no way that that behavior would have been tolerated, that it was never, right, you get the sack, you can't do it. Instead, I was applauded. You know, I'd work the hardest, I'd party the hardest to go, I'd, I'd still be first in the kitchen. You know, my eyes would be hanging out of my head, but I would stand there and I would still fill a fish for five hours and do it perfectly and my hands would go. And then I went through this cycle. So really the first 18 months of Estelle was crazy and wild, like really, really wild. And then it finally got to a point where I'm like, gee, I think, you know, the old thing I've been through, AA and programs and different stuff. I went to rehab in Bali sort of eight years ago just to sort of basically go and get clean and sober and to clear my mind. And I started reading about it and looking for things and there was a common phrase that said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that's really what I was. I was sick and tired of, you know, the guilt, the shame, that personal stuff deep inside my stomach about food, about cooking, about myself, about uh, who I abused or who had been rude to or who I insulted or, you know, drinking too much or missing things or being late or not, you know, sleeping and physically and mentally exhausted. So I said, well, I think I've got a really good opportunity with Estelle and it's every chef's dream to own their own restaurant. And I've seen many chefs either put it up their nose or, you know, drink it away or just absolutely stuff up restaurants. I've seen it. And I was 35 I was like, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to sacrifice so much for the last 22, 23 years of my life. And then in my 40s, end up being, yeah, divorced, you know, no restaurant, burnt out, alcoholic, drug addict that's telling wall stories at the front bar down at the Prince of Wales on a Monday night. Mm. And that was when the penny really lots dropped. Of that too, right? Lots of that. Lots of that. I've seen it. I've seen it and, and I got close, you know, like, the, what, like myself. You what know? was the catalyst to that though? Had you, how many kids have you got? You got three. 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 There was so only did, two at that stage, yeah. Did it coincide with that? Maybe because a little think, bit with that. I think it was just for me personally, I actually knew the day would always come and I finally accepted the fact that I actually had to do something about it and that it was starting to be out of control. Now, I was still like I was a functioning alcoholic. I was performing well. I still went to great restaurants and so I never really thought there was a problem. Yeah, because I like could achieve things for 20 years and always done this in an acceptable way, you know, to a degree. And then I was like, actually, no, I, I just can't physically and mentally do this. And I suppose the biggest thing was the, the enormity of, of being an owner of a restaurant and of being a husband and being a father all dropped in sort of one penny where I said, I need to be there for my staff. I need to be there for my wife. I need to be there for my kids. And I need to start being there for myself in a different sense. And that was when I said, you know what, I'm just getting out. So we made that decision. And then 48 hours later, I was in Bali. I went to see a doctor and he said, you've got a choice in Bacchus Marsh or Bali. And I said, well, it's a bit cold in Bacchus Marsh this time of the year and I've never been to Bali. So I jumped on a plane and went for two months. And it was kind of one of the best things that I've ever done in my life. You know, I had, um, you know, probably a bit of a spiritual awakening. Bali is a very special place. And, you know, it's very dear to my life, but I just sort of, I just recharged my batteries and I worked on all the things that I'd hidden or I tucked away or I hadn't really sort of dealt with over the years. And then, you know, for the first time I worked on myself and that was something that took me many years to get to. And that's why now I relate to that, to how I look at business and how we do things because I was honest with myself. Yep, like a hundred percent honest with myself. And then I said, so then I was like, well, I do some good things and some bad things and I do some, and I'm good at things and not good at things. So then that strength, that power that my sobriety now brings is now like a way of life that I try to feed it through to all around me and sort of who I am. Mm. How do you have that strength of um, character when you're essentially still immersed in the 
same industry and yep. you're surrounded by Yeah, by alcohol and drugs temptation. and constant and everything. And then hard work and, yep. you know, you have a drink at the end of the night because you, you've had a hard day and yeah, you want to yeah, relax. Yeah, 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 which is really, really normal. And look, I... Look, I wouldn't really drink during the day much when I was. I might go for a couple of pints sometimes in a break or in a split, which is, That's you know, That's you know yeah, which is normal. You know, it was normal. Two, five <laughs> pints in your break and then go back to a service. Um, and so I suppose that it was my biggest fear, my biggest, you know, worry is how do I be normal? What's my new normal? You know, yeah. can I go to a party? Can I go to a restaurant? Can I go out? Do I go to these things? You know, what do I do? My biggest fear was that I would only be that fun, crazy guy if I was drinking. Yeah. Yeah, but history shows us recently that that's not true either, Gary, doesn't it? With Digger Goes Rogue and stuff and things. So, you know, once I got over those personal fears and then I accepted that I started to change my lifestyle and what I do is I kind of found another 20, 30% of energy and focus and mind space and mental space to really achieve what we have in the last nine years of Estelle, like the last eight years post that point, because there's no way that I would have you know, multiple restaurants or have the headspace for it or the energy or the focus if I was still drinking. Yeah. And that's just, you know, that's the reality to it. So it's a gift and it's just not around me anymore. The first three or six months, it really kind of looked like I was really funny about it and I changed my habits and I meditate a little bit more or I'll go home or I just go upstairs and just lock myself in the office and read or work on menus or research things, and maybe this obsessive, compulsive, addictive nature is now feeding to opening restaurants and venues, you know, putting it to good use in a sense. But now that it's been seven years, it's it's not even part of my psyche. It's not even something that I think about. It's a lot more normal in a sense now. It's readily like acceptable that there's a lot of people in society that don't drink, whether it's for uh, health reasons, personal yeah. reasons, just a personal choice. There's not as much stigma as there was you know, seven or eight years ago. Yeah. And it's just not like my thing anymore. So it's just, it's yeah. it's lifted and it's gone and it doesn't really even come into my psyche, you know. The only thing that I've actually tasted in the last eight years is a um, 1916 <laughs> Petrus from a dinner that I did and it was a 30 mil shot and the guys brought it over. It was about an $80,000, you know, bottle of Burgundy and they saved me a little bit and they brought it over and I did mouthfeel. And then I spat it in the sink in the kitchen. And these two guys looked at me and they said, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't drink, but I couldn't pass up the mouthfeel and the nose of a 1916 Petrus. I said, like, you realize that's a $5,000 glass? I said, well, well, look, I wasn't going to get drunk on it anyway, but the mouthfeel was nice and I liked the nose. So that's the only thing that I've actually tasted since. That's it. Well, that's also the strength of mind and character to be able to yep. do that. Yeah. I was, you know, while you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, a friend of ours, <laughs> Raymond Capaldi, who's yep. not a drinker, but yep. he's always ever since I've known him, which has got to be like 20 years or something, mm. he's never drunk. Yep. Never drunk yep. for his own reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you would go to a bar and he'd ask the barman for a pot of tea. Tea. And, yep. we'd all, and all of us guys would go, what are you talking about, yeah, a pot yeah, of tea? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, he goes, yeah. I'm just having a pot of tea. Yeah. And we all got used to it. And yeah, I always yeah. admired that because I go, you'd walk into a packed bar yeah. and he'd go, would you do a pot of tea? And the barman would look and go, I can. I can, but sure. But I'll do it for yeah. you. And he'd just sit there and we're all drinking and he'd be drinking tea. Yeah. Just the last thing on that, I was listening to uh, David Chang recently and he was talking about, on his podcast, he was talking about his struggle with depression and he was saying yep. that when he was on the go and not on medication and 24-7 and a dynamo in all the businesses, yep. he said that in his own mind, every idea that he ever had was like the juiciest fruit you could possibly eat. Yeah. And he said, and in, 
hindsight, it wasn't. He yep. was destructive and yep. difficult to deal with and didn't obviously, you know, translate his ideas well down the line. And yep. I just thought it's very insightful, very brave. Have you, obviously, you've talked about your restaurant empire not yep. being what it was. Are there yep. other areas in your life where you thought, you know what, my goodness, that there's that one bit that it touched that I think uh, look, I'm in probably, hindsight... I'm probably present a lot more for my family. Mm. Yeah. And I probably, I don't upset my mum as much, my dad, <laughs> my wife, you know, my kids, you know, the youngest ones never really see me drink. And it's funny, I can see a different connection and bond with him as opposed to the older two. You know, we go boy, girl, boy, but the little one was born, like was only 12 months old when I sort of gave up drinking. And I can see a very different sort of spiritual bond you know, between us and not to say that's not there with the first two, but I wasn't as present in the early years of their life because I was consumed by, you know, the kitchen, by restaurants and by drinking. And so if you're only giving them and look, you get in, you know, you get out what you put in. So I'd be home Sunday mornings. I'd be hung over. I'd wake up at 10, 11 or 12. We'd spend the afternoon together. We'd have dinner. I'd go to bed at nine o'clock because I was tired. Then I'd wake up and go to work at seven or eight o'clock in the morning. I never saw them. And that's probably why we actually, I built Estelle and I started in Northcote because I live three minutes down the road. And I was at the point uh, here, like, mm. you know, at Park for a long time. And I just got sick of crossing the city. And there's plenty of bars and pubs on the way from Northcote to Albert Park. So you get sidetracked on the way home, Gary, you know. Um, you know, that was a lifestyle choice where I could do what I wanted to do, cook what I wanted to do, run the restaurant, be three minutes from home, the kids' schools around the corner. I could be part of the community I had to allow myself to get to work at 9.30, yeah, which is a big thing for me because it would always been 7, 8 or 9. And if I was there after 9, then I'd, I'd have this thing inside me that would grind and say, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late to start my day. My manic mind will go. So then I'm like, well, okay, I can drop the kids at school. Like I'm getting up in the morning. I'm like I've got a clearer head. I'm not as moody and irritable even though I'm – Still moody and irritable. I mean, it's a, they're a legitimate emotions. You know, it, they're yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, they are, but not as much, not as constant. And then I'll be present with the kids in the morning and then I just change my routine and I take them to school and I'm like, right, it's all right to walk them to school, go home, then have a shower, get ready, then to get to the restaurant at 9.30 or 10 o'clock and allowing myself to do that and then having that little bit of time and then if I need to or if I want to, I can go home and we can have dinner at four or five o'clock together as a family and then I can go back for dinner service. Yeah. You know, like I cut out an hour, an hour and a half of travel time. So then I'm gaining that. I'm like, well, that travel time, let's use that time, you know, to be present, to be there for the kids, for the family, for my wife and stuff. So, you know, just looking at how I altered my life and actually growing up a little bit, Gary, I think, you know. Well, at the start of this podcast, we said uh, Scott Pickett, 150 kilometres an hour. I think everybody's been listening going, oh, yeah, it's a bit faster than that, is it? It's pedal, <laughs> it's pedal to the metal. Yeah, Hang is. on, boys, because we're going. <laughs> Can't wait to see what uh, you do next. And, of course, you've got a lot on your plate. But, yeah, you know, it's nice to hear that there's a bit of balance uh, back in your life. i tell you what, we could do about two hours in here, I reckon. Brilliant stuff. Scott Pickett, thank you very much. Cheers, Gary. Thanks, mate. Time for my tips and tricks. And I love talking to Scott because he's old school. He's disciplined. He's learnt by, you know, the hard yards, the hard graft. But you know what it does teach a home cook when you apply those kind of professional standards or their techniques? It's just being a little bit more precise. I tend to find when you're talking to a home cook, they're a little disorganised and they don't follow procedure. And a few things in your kitchen will make a big difference. First one, buy a thermometer. It takes the guesswork out of everything. And I'm talking digital thermometer. You know those old techniques of putting in a skewer into a cake and if it comes out clean, it's cooked? Learn the temperature, you'll nail it. 
every time. People talk about cooking the perfect steak, learn the temperature, you'll nail it every time. It sounds silly and it may even sound a little lazy to some, but it will make a massive difference. So that's number one. And put things in your drawer that you know you can rely on, a microplane. It just makes grating so easy. Garlic, ginger, you'll be grating everything. A sharp knife or two. You know what? As a professional, you tend to rely on maybe three knives, a good cook's knife, a serrated edge knife for bread, for example, and a little cook's knife, so a paring knife. If you keep those sharp, you look after them, they will last a lifetime. And you know what? Doesn't sound like a lot, but those little things make a big difference in the home kitchen. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Darcy Thompson.